So let's open our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. And this is a, the second in a two-part series, verses 26 through 39. It's called The Maniac Who Became a Missionary. Now, if you weren't with us last week, you might do well to uh, go to our website and uh, listen to part one, because there's some pretty fascinating material um, that we covered in trying to understand um, who this maniac was. So we're going to come to the completion, hopefully, this morning, and how the Lord actually did turn him into a missionary. And just by the way of uh, general introduction for, <clears throat> for a moment, the Apostle John wrote us that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came into the world not only to save us from sin, but to save us from Satan. He came to eliminate our guilt, and he came to eliminate our enemy. And the Bible makes this very clear starting in the beginning. In Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God said, There will come one, the seed of a woman, who will crush the serpent's head. And while for a time Satan appears to be running free, but he is limited in his evil intentions by by the Lord. And uh, we know that one day he will be bound with his demons for a thousand years and then cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the effect and the impact of Satan and all his efforts. So as we look here at chapter 8, we see Jesus demonstrating his power over Satan, his ability to crush the serpent's head, his ability to disarm the forces of the demons, and his ability, if you will, with a simple word to command all the hosts of darkness to do exactly what he says them to do. This tells us that he is God, for only God can, can control the kingdom of darkness. This tells us that he is the one who can deliver the world from Satan and his hosts. This tells us he has the power to deliver sinners from the kingdom of darkness and Satan's realm. In other words, we're seeing a demonstration here of his power over the kingdom of darkness. And so, the Son of Man appears for destroying the works of the devil. Let me back that up with a few verses out of the New Testament. Jesus even said in John 12, the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 16, he said, the ruler of this world has been judged. Romans 16 says that God will crush Satan under your feet. And Colossians 2 says that at the very time that Jesus was dying on the cross, he was triumphing over the forces of hell and vanquishing and disarming demons in that triumph. And Hebrews 2 says, through his death, he rendered powerless the one who had the power over death, And that is the devil. So we expect to see Jesus not only as a good teacher, not only as a gentle, kind healer, but we expect to see Jesus display 
his displays of power over the kingdom of darkness. And so we do because the Lord came not only to save us from sin, not only to save us from death and judgment, but to save us from Satan. Now, as we come to verse 26, let's review the reading from last time. Starting in verse 26, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out to the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Let's stop at this point. Now, we looked at that last time, and we pointed out, and I'm just going to repeat it so it's kind of fresh in our minds, that in the Old Testament, there is no instructions regarding exorcism of demons. There's not even a specific encounter with a demon-possessed person in the Old Testament. A couple of occasions, 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Kings 22, where evil spirits are mentioned, but it's in a general way. And of course, in Genesis 6, there's some fallen angels that were up to some kind of shenanigans there, but we really don't have an account in the Old Testament of an individual <clears throat> demon-possessed person or the way they behave. And so that's to say we don't have a lot of info from the Old Testament about this. But we do know they prefer to do their work under the surface, unseen. They prefer to be thought of as angels of light and servants of God. And so they masquerade behind religion and particularly in more sophisticated societies. So demon possession is not uncommon. It's just not commonly dealt with in the Bible. And the reason I mentioned that to you about the Old Testament is so you understand what's happening here in the Gospels is very unique. In fact, there's an exposure of demon possession during the time of Jesus and the apostles, and then it just kind of disappears as you read through the the epistles in the New Testament, of course, until we get to the last days of the tribulation. Now, we looked at this last time. Last time we looked at the terrible, destructive power of demons, and Jesus, by his presence, his holy presence, exposes the demons in a way that demonstrates his absolute power and authority over them. Let's look at Luke 11.20. Luke 11.20, Jesus sums up the reason by saying this, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And that's exactly what we see here. Now, our outline... If you remember from last time, we divided this story up into three sections. Point number one was the destructive power of demons, and we looked at that last week. This week, let's look at the delivering power of Jesus and then the damning power of sin. Now, around these three forces 
these three elements of power, our story unfolds. So let's move to the delivering power of Jesus. Now you might have noticed that Luke typically understates the facts in his gospel. No fanfare. He's just straight, very, uh, very common expressions. Luke doesn't use a lot of ad- additives. I think he saves that for the preachers. So here is the amazing power of Jesus over the for- forces of hell. And Luke says in verse 29, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Simple. He commanded the unclean spirit to go out of the man. Now, you and I could do that with absolutely no effect. There's nothing about me that frightens a demon. I don't exercise any authority over them, and it's absolutely foolish for me to tell demons or Satan what to do. But then again, we're not afraid what they might do because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God because John tells us, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Now these forces would like to destroy you and me. They would like to destroy this church. They would like to destroy your life. And anybody who preaches the gospel, they would like to destroy the work of God, but they cannot. No Christian is ever indwelt by demons. There's no such thing in the Bible All the possessed demons were outside the kingdom of God and inside the kingdom of darkness. Now for Jesus to simply say and command the spirit to go, come out, and the demon spirit to respond is an incredible expression of power. Remember, these are angels They're not like human beings. They're not confined to the limitations of of a human brain. They have far superior intelligence than a human does. They have superior might. In fact, if you recall 2 Kings 19, one night after dinner, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. These are powerful beings. And if you remember Daniel chapter 10, they have an influence and responsibility over masses, uh, areas of territory. They're so powerful that even fallen angels can withstand the coming of holy, holy angels. If you remember Daniel 10, the Lord had to dispatch Michael, the mighty Michael, or the archangel, to get them out of the way. They have ex, uh, ex, a lot of experience, superior experience. They live through every era of time, and they will live forever. And they only are subject to one more powerful than them, and that is the Lord himself. And Jesus demonstrates clearly here that he is God. Now let's look at the conversation that Jesus had when he commanded them to leave, starting in verse 30, if you have a Bible with you. Chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now, I don't know what his parents named him. His name isn't important. It's never recorded in the Bible. But he's, the voice that dominated him said, Legion. Why did he say Legion? It says, for many. 
for many had entered him, for many demons had entered him. Legion is not a name. Legion describes a regiment of Roman soldiers numbering somewhere around 6,000. And this isn't like Mary Magdalene, who was possessed by seven demons. No, this poor tormented soul was literally the home of thousands of demons. In fact, in Mark it tells us that the herd of pigs was 2,000. So we know that there are at least 2,000 supernatural, suicidal, homicidal, maniacal demon terrorists living in this man. And Jesus says, be gone. And they're out. So with his finger, metaphorically, he overpowers the kingdom of hell. Verse 31 tells us they were begging him not to command them to depart in the abyss, the bottomless pit. Do not send us into the lake of fire. They acknowledged that there is a defined, determined time. But it's not now. And James puts it this way in James 2.19. The devils believe and tremble or shudder. They were not ready to give up their operation. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. They know they can't win. They know how it's going to end. And they know God is sovereign. But in their perverse, twisted minds, they still think maybe there could be an overthrow. Now, verse 32, it tells us there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. Now, this is a Gentile area called the Decapolis, and they were raising pigs. And the demons implored him, it says, to permit them to enter the swine. So they're in the presence of Jesus. Now they've been cast out. They don't want to go to the bottomless pit, so they make a suggestion where they would like to go. Put us in the pigs. I'm not sure why, but maybe they think they can figure out a way to do their work Um, while they're inside these pigs. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 32, it, it says, He gave them permission. Okay, you may go. Now, isn't that interesting? They could, they couldn't do anything unless Jesus commanded them or permitted them. Now, why would he do that? Why would he give them permission to go into the pigs? Well, few reasons. Because it was going to be dramatic proof that the demons had left the man, right? It was going to be proof of his divine power, and also it was going to show the deadly intention of demons. What do they want to do? They want to kill. That's what they want to do. And it's only God who prevents that. And it also gives us a preview of the judgment to come on evil beings. Look what happens in verse 33. The demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. What an amazing reaction. They just ran down this hill, and they did a beautiful swine dive. Okay, I just made that up. But actually, they did commit suicide. Everybody okay? No. (laughs) So what's the point of this? 2,000 pigs careening down a hill, drowning. By the way, pigs are excellent swimmers. 
But the point was, first of all, that to show that the man had been delivered. This was visible, uh, physical proof, visual physical proof. And secondly, it, it reveals the intent of the demons to kill. Also, it reveals the power of Jesus Christ over the kingdom of darkness. That was a tremendous, dramatic illustration. That this man had been delivered because the pigs acted in this kind of frenzy, self-destructive way that the man had. So they became maniac pigs now. The man definitely had demons. Now they're gone because the pigs are now behaving like the man did. And that's what the people concluded. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported into the city and out into the country. So they were eyewitnesses. Whoever was working for the owner of the pigs, um, they saw what happened. They reported it. It says they went to the city and the country. Um, so in a way to see, they couldn't stop talking about it. Wherever they went, they had never seen anything like it in their lives, obviously. And pigs don't just dive off cliffs and kill themselves. They're not dumb like sheep. They're actually intelligent. But they herded pigs in this area so they would know about the man and all of a sudden, this thing takes place, the most amazing thing ever. And so they become preachers. They become heralds. They told everybody about it, indicating even they realized the connection between the man's deliverance and the pig's traumatic demise. And so the result in verse 35, the people, Matthew um, in his account tells us the same story, but he adds, the whole city came out. Everybody would know that there were 2,000 pigs out there that belonged to somebody and that they had all gone down the slope and drowned into the lake. Everybody went out to see what happened, and it says they came to Jesus. They went out to see what happened, and their interest was specifically in Jesus because the herdsmen would have told them that this man came, he cast out the demons into the pigs. They wanted to see what kind of man does this. The whole city came out to meet Jesus. They came out specifically to meet Jesus. And this shows us that he is the focus of the attention here. It was greater, he was of greater concern to them than the pigs or the possessed man. And just as a, uh, as a side note, many commentators and many preachers um, through the years have said that the people were upset at the loss of their pigs. It was a crime, you know, to kill somebody's pigs. And so how dare Jesus do this? So they indict Jesus for executing the pigs, and that's why they wanted Jesus to leave. Well, in Matthew's account, in Mark's account, and in Luke's account, they never mention the owner of the pigs ever. Never makes an issue out of this. No indication they were upset by the loss of pigs. There are whole sermons preached on preferring pigs over people or being materialistic instead of spiritual or whatever things you could read into this. There's nothing, <clears throat> there's nothing in this account that says they focused on the pig. They focused, it says, or the man. It says they focused on Jesus. Not the pigs. That story is not about pigs or demons, or the man. The story is about the power of Jesus Christ. And that's where the focus was. It was Jesus they came out to see because they were stunned about what they had heard and about his power. 
Verse 35. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Literally, it says he was thinking wisely. This transformation was so radical, it was so opposite of who he had been. Let me give you some extreme examples of how this thing went. Instead of being naked, he was now clothed. Instead of wandering without purpose, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Instead of being in the tombs, the place of the dead, he was sitting among the living, Jesus and his disciples. Instead of shrieking and screaming, he was now quiet. Instead of deadly and threatening, he was peaceful. Instead of tormented, no longer tormented, he was now comforted. Instead of insanity, there was sanity. Instead of chaos, there's now tranquility. This is a magnificent, perfect picture of a salvation transformation. That's what happens to a person when they meet Jesus and he forgives them of their sin. This is just amazing. So the man they saw uh, was transformed, but he wasn't just delivered from the demons. He was now falling before Jesus and wanting to be led by him. Clearly, Jesus had explained the gospel to him so that he had been delivered not only from demons, but from sin and hell. Well, what was their reaction? Verse 35. They became frightened, it says. And that's the word phobeo. It's the word that we get phobia from. They were terrified, basically, what it was. If you know anybody or have ever had a phobia, it's something that grips you, paralyzes you with fear. This is the word that he's using here. And again, we see the same thing all through the Gospel of Luke. People realizing they're in the presence of God are frightened, they're traumatized, and terrified. And throughout this chapter, back in verse 25, you remember, when Jesus calmed the storm, the sea and the waves, it says the disciples were fearful. They were frightened. That was the same word. They were panicked. And we see it through the rest of the chapter. People are literally terrified every time Jesus does a miracle. Whether it's a healing or raising of a dead person, it creates a certain amount of terror in people because they know they're in the presence of God. And that is a holy presence. A good example would be Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul. It says... He tells us, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. Same word. I am the first and the last. John was overwhelmed with terror at the manifestation of Christ's glory and fell at his feet, it says, like a dead man. This is similar to what we're going to see in our next chapter, chapter 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus Christ reveals his glory, the disciples fell on their face like dead men. So now that leads us 
to the third power demonstrated here, the damning power of sin. So in sharp contrast to the delivered maniac, the response of the sane people illustrates the sin's power over the lost. Remember the Lord's first sermon back in chapter 4? We spent two weeks on it because it is so foundational for the book of Luke. Chapter 4, verse 18, the Lord says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to recover the sight of the blind. It blinds sin, blinds them to the truth. It causes them to hate and reject all evidence of the truth. And they stubbornly cling to their false illusion of well-being. It's the nature of sin to blind. It's the nature of sin to hate truth. It's the nature of sin to reject the proof and to resist righteousness and to hold on to iniquity. That's what sin does. So here you have an undeniable evidence of the power of God in Jesus. This is a miracle so massive that demonstrates his power not only over the physical realm, but over the supernatural. His power over the forces of evil, to deliver men from evil. You see this without any argument. There's no debate here. They don't discuss it. They just know what happens, and it terrifies them. And their reaction, instead of saying, thank you, how do we get delivered? Look at verse 36. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. Now, this is an interesting verse. They want to know what happened. They say, give us the details. How did this happen? They're terrified of Jesus. What's going on here? And so those who had seen it told them the full story about the demon-possessed man, how he'd been made well. And it said made well. That's from sozo. That's the word we use for saved. Tell us how did this man get saved? And then they gave them the full account, details that we don't have in Luke's gospel. You know, I would think, and you would think, that people would be convinced if they just had a powerful enough miracle. If I could just figure a clever enough way to speak the gospel. If I could have an attractive enough way to present the gospel. If you could just give a a powerful enough example of the miracles. People would really be convinced No, because the power of sin destroys reality. The idea that sinners will be convinced by a powerful miracle is not true. Well, what did the Jews do? They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And at the end of three years, what did they want to do? They wanted him dead. And the Gentiles here are no different. I can't imagine a more powerful, clear example of the saving power of Jesus Christ than what we've just seen here. Sending thousands of demons out of a man with one word. Rationally, you would have to confess this is the power of God. But the truth of this is this is hard soil. Back in verses 5 and 12, the hard soil, the seed of truth just falls on this hard soil It's just like concrete. It doesn't penetrate. 
And their reaction, verse 37, all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district. Now you've got a big crowd out there and all of them asked him to depart. It says they asked him to depart from them. They asked Jesus to go away. Why? Because they were terrified. They were gripped with fear. Great fear, it says. But what would they be terrified of? After all, hadn't he brought safety where there was danger? Hadn't he brought peace where there was chaos? They don't say that. Why? Well, John tells us in his gospel, chapter 3, 19. John tells us that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Why? For their deeds were evil. There's not a word of thanks from these people for the deliverance of danger from this man. They see Jesus as a greater danger than the man. They would rather have the maniac than the Son of God. They would rather be terrified by Satan than to be terrified by God. They would rather endure the presence of demons than the presence of divine reality. They're just like Israel. They were not asking Jesus to go away because he messed with their economy by killing their pigs. They weren't asking him to go away because they were materialistic and not spiritual and mad at him at what he'd done. No, the whole town and the whole region, it says, wanted him to go away because they were terrified, terrified of his holiness. You know, the world is really comfortable with maniacs and pigs. But it's not comfortable with Jesus Christ, is it? Bring Jesus Christ's name up in a conversation and see what happens. They would rather have a maniac than a Christian. They would rather have the presence of Satan than the presence of Christ. This is the blindness and the damning power of sin. And on a sad note, in verse 37... It says that Jesus, he got into a boat and returned. He never, ever came back. One time, one occasion, they said, get out. And so Jesus got in a boat. He went back to Capernaum. Was this an insult? Yes, but much more than that. It was a damning rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus never, ever came back. A question, what about you? What would you have done on that day? If you'd have been there, would you have cherished and loved and hung on to your sin and asked Jesus to go away? Or would you plead with Jesus to forgive you of your sin and deliver you the way that he had delivered this man? If you look around here today, we're going to see many people here that have trans been transformed by Jesus. We've been forgiven from sin and delivered from Satan. We here are living testimonies of the power of Jesus to transform. So are you interested in that? Do you want to be delivered and rescued from sin and death and hell? Or would you rather be in the grip of Satan than God? Would you rather continue to be with what's unholy than what's holy? See, the Lord Jesus is either loved or hated. 
There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. Jesus says you're either for me or you're against me. You can't have it any other way. And if you can figure out a way to present the gospel without causing people to love or hate, you've compromised the message. But this story ends with a wonderful truth and conclusion. The maniac becomes a missionary. The man, according to verse 38, says, From whom the demons had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. Obviously, there's no Christians in this area. He'd just been forgiven and been transformed by this incredible miracle. So naturally, he says, I want to be with you. I want to go with you. Can I join the group to go back with you? He now, all of a sudden, has a cleansed conscience. He has new desires. He's now thinking rationally. He's clothed. And he's free. And his willingness to forsake all shows that he has been delivered from sin. In the next chapter, chapter 9, we're going to see Jesus teach us how to evangelize. And he's going to ask and tell his disciples, you want to be a Christian? He's going to tell them exactly how to become a Christian. He says, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that's exactly what we see happen here with this man. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus says to him in verse 38, basically, no. Send him away. No, you can't go with me. Does that surprise you? Well, not everybody's supposed to go to seminary. Not everybody's supposed to get all the formal training, training. But you say, you can't just leave him here. He's just a baby Christian. You know, if you and I know enough of the gospel to get saved, we know enough to tell somebody else. We know enough to be a missionary, right? And Jesus sent him away. He says, you don't need any further training. It's not a priority at this point. Further training is great, but you don't need further training. He was the one witness in this whole region. And here we see the wonderful grace of God. They had totally wholesale rejected Jesus Christ, but he had not totally rejected them. He left them a witness. So in verse 39, he says, Return to your house. I wonder how long it had been. Can you imagine the scene? As him walking up the path to his house. He says, Go back to your family and describe great things that God has done for you. So he is the first Gentile missionary. And that's where your mission and mine and our ministry begins at home. So if this man knew enough to get saved, he knew enough to tell somebody else, and that man had left, if he had left with Jesus, there would have been no witness in that place. So here was grace in the face of rejection. Jesus sent him back to his own people, and he said to him, Describe what great things God has done for you. And he went his way proclaiming throughout the whole city the great things Jesus had done for him. 
How interesting. You go tell him the great things God has done, and he went and told him the great things Jesus had done. Why? Because Jesus is God. Someday, we all think of people we want to talk to when we get to heaven. But I would like to meet this man and ask him, how successful was he? He was the only believer in that whole area. Anyway, he went proclaiming the truth of God throughout the whole city, preaching through the whole city. This is personal evangelism, the story of what the Lord has done. Mark 5 says, everyone was amazed, amazed. Well, that's what Jesus does. He turns maniacs into missionaries. And that's what he does for anyone that will come to him. And that's our story also. We weren't maybe possessed by demons. Our life story was maybe not as dramatic as this man. But we have been brought by the power of Jesus Christ from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This shows us the power of demons, the power of the delivering Lord, and the power of sin. What a story. So if you have been delivered, you are a missionary too. Amen? The man had no formal theological training, yet he had everything he needed to fulfill Christ's commission for him. Having been delivered and transformed by the Lord Jesus, the same responsibility is shared by all of us who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go tell our story. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word, Lord, and this story of transformation. What a wonderful story in this conversion, Lord. We thank you for your power, Lord, and that we can put our trust and hope in you. And you're the only hope that we have in this dark world, Lord. As, as we go this week, Father, and we encounter evil things, Lord, let us cling to you knowing that you are our Savior and our Lord. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, that is conforming us into your image, Lord. Lord, just help us to have boldness, Lord. Fill us with your spirit that we too can go and tell the wonderful things that you're doing in our life. We thank you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.